Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can give them a call. Just visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a great show lined up for you today, including guests Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Warren G. Harding's got a bad rap as president of the United States. We're going to find out maybe some of his good things that he's done uh, during his administration. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington bureau chief, will be joining us as well. It is March the 28th, and on this day in 1979, the worst accident in the history of U.S. nuclear power industry began when a pressure valve in the Unit 2 reactor at Three Mile Island failed to close. Cooling water contaminated with radiation drained from the open valve into adjoining buildings, and the core began to dangerously overheat. The Three Mile Island nuclear power plant was built in 1974 on a sandbar on Pennsylvania's Susquehanna River, just 10 miles downstream. From the state capital in Harrisburg, in 1978, a second state-of-the-art reactor began operating on Three Mile Island, which was lauded for generating affordable and reliable energy in a time of energy crisis. After the cooling water began to drain out of the broken pressure valve on the morning of March 28th, uh, emergency cooling pumps automatically went into operation. Left alone, these safety devices would have prevented the development of a larger crisis. However... Human operators in the control room misread confusing and contradictory readings and shut off the emergency water system. The reactor also shut down, but residual heat from the fission process was still being released. By early morning, uh, the core had heated to over 4,000 degrees, just 1,000 degrees short of a meltdown. In the meltdown scenario, the core melts and deadly radiation drifts across the countryside, fatally sickening a potentially greater number of people. As the plant operators struggled to understand what had happened, the contaminated water was releasing radioactive gases throughout the plant. The radiation levels, though not immediately life-threatening, were dangerous, and the core cooked further as the contaminated water was contained and precautions were taken to protect the operators. Shortly after 8 a.m., word of the accident leaked to the outside world. The plant's parent company, Metropolitan Edison, downplayed the crisis and continued and claimed that no radiation had been detected on plant grounds, but the same day inspectors slightly detected slightly increased levels of radiation nearby as a result of contaminated water leak. Pennsylvania Governor Dick Thornburg considered calling an evacuation. Finally, at about 8 p.m., plant operators realized they needed to get water moving through the core again and restarted the pumps. The temperatures began to drop and pressure in the reactor was reduced. The reactor had come within an hour or less than an hour, of complete meltdown. More than half of the core was destroyed or molten, but it had not broken its protective shell and no radiation was escaping. The crisis was apparently over. But two days later, on March the 30th, a bubble of highly flammable hydrogen gas was discovered in the reactor building. The bubble of gas was created two days before the exposed core materials reacted with superheated steam. On March the 28th, some of the gas had exploded, releasing a small amount of radiation into the atmosphere. At the time, plant operators had not registered the explosion, which sounded like a ventilation door closing. After the radiation leak was discovered on March the 30th, residents were advised to stay indoors. Experts were uncertain if the hydrogen bubble uh, would create further meltdown or possibly giant explosion. And as a precaution, the governor uh, advised pregnant women and preschool children age uh, children children to leave the area with a five-mile radius of Three Mile Island facility. This led to a panic and the governor hoped to avoid. Within days, more than 100,000 people had fled surrounding towns. On March the 1st, President Jimmy Carter arrived at Three Mile Island to inspect the plant. He was a trained, by the way, nuclear engineer, which helped dismantle a damaged Canadian nuclear reactor when uh, serving in the U.S. Navy. His visit achieved its aim of calming local residents and the nation 
That afternoon, exper experts agreed that the hydrogen bubble was not in danger of exploding. Slowly, the hydrogen was bled from the system as the reactor cooled. At the height of the crisis, plant workers were exposed to unhealthy levels of radiation, but no one outside Three Mile Island had their safe, their health adversely affected by the accident. Nonetheless, the incident greatly eroded the public's faith in nuclear power. The unharmed Unit 1 reactor at Three Mile Island, which was shut down during the crisis, did not resume operation until 1985. Cleanup continued on Unit 2 until 1990, but it was too damaged to be rendered usable again. I think that incident probably killed uh, nuclear power plants here in the United States. It's a good source of energy, and uh, there is the problem of what do you do with the waste. Uh, but irrespective, it's inexpensive uh, power, energy, that uh, doesn't have some of the concerns that the environmentalists are concerned about, namely carbon emissions. However, uh, it uh, for whatever reason, they don't focus on it as a as a uh, solution to their concerns about uh, carbon uh, waste, <clears throat> which there is no such thing, quite frankly. Florida's statewide unemployment rate continued to lower. Uh, it's lower than the national averages. It added just jobs 22 months in a row, that according to Governor DeSantis. The Sunshine State is surpassing pre-pandemic rates in terms of economic growth, with the unemployment rate down to 3.3%. Uh, lower than the nation's rate. It has been uh, lower in the nation's for 15 consecutive months. Further, Florida's private sector added 52,000 jobs in February, 0.6% uh, over last month. Nice job. I think the basic of the governor's done a terrific job in getting us through this pandemic and keeping the economy open. Uh, Ned Johnson the third, a businessman who grew Fidelity Investments into a financial giant that died at age 91 on Friday. He was born in Boston at the start of the Great Depression and joined his father's firm in 1957 as a portfolio manager. He became president of Fidelity in 1972, and his father retired in 76 when he became the CEO. While his father founded Fidelity, Johnson's four-decade tenure transformed the firm into Wall Street and investment giant that it is today. We're immensely proud of his achievements and grateful for his life, the Johnson family said. He was a visionary, an innovator, a philanthropist who had tremendous curiosity about the world around him and who lived his life in the fullest each and every day. That's certainly true. And uh, I think it was the money market fund that really set Fidelity on fire. They decided to release money market funds and people could sign up for it at, for no cost whatsoever. That just expanded the number of accounts back in the 70s, and uh, uh, other investment firms were slow to catch on, but by the time they had, did, Fidelity had a foothold in that business, and it just greatly expanded their business, and they've done a great job over the years. Ned Johnson was a great leader, and uh, he was a great human being, did a lot for the city of Boston and for, uh, well, for the world, actually. He's a great leader. Ned Johnson, dead at the age of 91. While the president made quite a diplomatic mess on his trip to Europe, the White House had been forced to walk back or clarify multiple remarks made by President Biden, including having to clarify on Saturday that the president was not calling for a regime change in Moscow. On Saturday, Biden appeared to call for regime change in Russia, declaring that Russian President Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, Biden said in a speech in front of Royal Castle in Warsaw, Poland. It appeared to uh, mark a sharp, con sharp contrast from prior statements from the White House, which has emphasized the regime change in Russia is not the policy of the United States. For us, it's not regime change. The Russian people have to decide who they want to lead them, said Secretary of State Blinken. Uh, in addition, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said earlier this month, we are not advocating for killing the leader of the foreign country or regime change. That's not the policy of the United States. Shortly after Biden's address, however, the White House denied that Biden was calling for regime change. The president pointed out that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors in the region. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia. <laughs> That's their story, and they're sticking to it. But, you know, what a gaffe. Unbelievable the president would make these types of errors. 
On Friday, he was speaking to the U.S. troops in Poland and said that the Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone before appearing to suggest that troops would soon be in Ukraine itself, something U.S. officials had repeatedly ruled out. And you're going to see when you're there, he told the 82nd Airborne Division. And some of you have been there. You're going to see that you're going to see a woman, young people standing in front of damn tanks just saying, I'm not leaving. I'm holding my ground. That's incredible. But they take a lot of inspiration from us, said the president, whatever that means. The White House spokesperson later clarified the remark. The president has been clear we are not sending <laughs> U.S. troops to Ukraine and there's no change in that position. It's not. It's really not funny. I mean, it is funny, but this is serious business, and these statements that the president makes are being taken seriously and of concern to people around the world. In kind response to chemical weapons, on Thursday, Biden was asked if the U.S. would respond to Russia if we were to use chemical weapons as part of its invasion of Ukraine. Biden said that such a move by Russians would trigger a response in kind. He actually said that. After the remark, it was up to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to clarify. Sullivan was asked by what, what he meant in kind, and Sullivan meant we're responding accordingly, uh, that Russia would pay a severe price. We will collect the form and nature of the response based on the nature and action Russia takes, Sullivan said, and we'll do so in coordination with our allies. And I won't go uh, beyond the others than to say that the uh, United States has no intention of using chemical weapons, period, under any circumstances, Sullivan maintained. Uh, press uh, Further, Sullivan responded saying, I will just say, with respect to any use of chemicals, weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, chemical, or biological, Russia would pay a severe price. Uh, we're commu communicating directly with the Russians, and I'm not going to speak further to it here, he said. Well, the president brings anything he brings up on the national stage or international stage, he just makes worse. He was speaking off the teleprompter. In other words, he was, making, he was winging it when he made these statements. He just should not be allowed to do that. He just makes things worse. And, of course, uh, thousands stood in line on Saturday to wait to see the president in Commerce, Georgia. He, he came another one of his rallies, and he sure didn't disappoint Linda and I watched the uh, rally. He was just fantastic and obviously inspiring and inspirational. He did a terrific job. And uh, he was there, of course, to support the whole notion of getting Kemp out of office and uh, getting in David Perdue as the uh, governor of Georgia and uh, getting making sure that Stacey Abrams uh, wouldn't win. He said Kemp has repeatedly caved to Stacey Abrams. I think he's afraid of her. Why is he afraid of her? Well, what the hell is there to be afraid of? But he bent on Stacey Abrams. I don't think he's been on. He, I think he bent to Joe Biden. I, I don't think Joe Biden knows what the hell's happening. Trump said that was just a touch of what happened at the rally on Saturday night. Great inspirational uh, rally. Great to see Trump in action. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. 
Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252 252- 4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. It's really funny. Download the app and find out more by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called historycentral.com. I hope you check it out. It's great for kids of all ages, including you and I. Again, historycentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure, as always. Thank you, Mark. So, again, uh, you know, we have the continuation of the story of Ukraine right now. And uh, to me, it looks like they're inching towards a discussion, a peace discussions. What are your thoughts? It's not clear about that. You know, we keep on talking about that. It's brought up each time. What's inching is a Ukrainian victory, it looks like, slowly but surely. Mm. The Russian army is falling apart. Uh, Putin doesn't have a lot of plays up his belt, and the question is, what is he going to do at this point? Mm. Uh, you know, this has been the greatest disaster, uh, certainly in Putin's career, probably in modern Russian history, without a doubt. Um, and um, the question is, can he save face at all, or is it too late even to save face? Mm. Uh, look, the Ukrainians are being, you know, being killed in reasonably large numbers. Putin is waging a, you know, the most uh, War crimes at every single moment. He's, he's only, uh, he should be at the Hague when this is all over, without a doubt. It won't happen, obviously. But uh, the reality is this has been a war against the civilian population more than anything else. Mm. Uh, will there be an agreement? It, it depends. It's going to require Putin to climb all the way down his tree um, because, um, you know, he's not going to get a change of government. He's not going to get territorial concessions from the Ukrainians at this point. Um, so they'll pledge neutrality, whatever that means. A neutral country that absolutely hates Russia at this point. I mean, Putin got the exact opposite of what he was looking to get, uh, to say the least. Yeah, it's, it's very um, difficult to discern why he would make the move that he made to come into Ukraine. Um, it, uh, it, it was an act of aggression. There's no question about that. It was, you know, they didn't attack him. They didn't provoke him. It didn't seem to me that I know that they're claiming there were there were atrocities against Russia in Ukraine, but uh, that just doesn't. Those are complete falsehoods. Those are just all falsehoods. That there were there were no atrocities against Russians in Ukraine. Every single thing that he said was a false flag. Um, there were no. Listen, the man is a is a KGB spy at his core. What he does is lie. Mm-hmm. And he got the whole Russian government to lie for him at this point. So there, was, there was no excuse. He just thought that Ukraine would collapse instantly. He believes that Ukraine is part of Russia historically and therefore it must be part of Russia. He was also afraid that the democracy that was developing in fits and starts in Ukraine was going to be a bad um, example for his people. Yeah. If Ukrainians can do it, why can't the Russians do it? You know, that's. That's that's probably his biggest fear of them all. So he's um, he's isolated so himself. Were, he's like kind of isolated himself internationally, hasn't he? I mean, what? How about his relationship with uh, with China at this point? It's rocky. It's not quite clear where that stands. Obviously, the Chinese are afraid to play their cards, and they're playing them close to the vest because, uh, on one end, this is terrible for business for them. Second of all, they don't want to be seen as a. Um, as a supporter of Russia too strongly because they 
need the Europeans in terms of trade relations and also the United States. It's a very difficult situation for China. And of course, also China has to be thinking now 10 times before they give any thought to possibly invading Taiwan. If the Ukrainians that have that weren't preparing for 70 years and, uh, you know, don't don't live on an island, border directly the Russians, are able to hold off the Russians for this long, the Chinese must be asking themselves, is this what we are looking to do in, in Taiwan? Uh, I have to say this, this has probably put off any plans, any military plans that Xi might have had, um, probably for his lifetime, frankly. Hmm. Interesting. So we've got, I think we're up to about three and a half million refugees now. It's about a tenth of the population or a little less than a tenth of the population in Ukraine that have, uh, are now refugees in Poland. I mean, wh where have these people gone? Okay, so they start in Poland and they move on to any other place in the EU. Uh, all the countries of the EU have said they will accept uh, Polish refugees for up to three years and give them work permits for up to three years. Hmm. Uh, President Biden announced the United States will take up to 100,000. Remember, these are almost all women and children. The men have stayed behind to fight. Mm -hmm. So you talk, And, of course, elderly people as well. But so you're talking about women and children and elderly people in almost all cases in terms of the refugees. And um, Germany, Sweden, you name it, every single country, and Sweden is not part of it. They are, actually. Every single part of the EU has stepped up and said they will take uh, large numbers of refugees. And even the UK, which is no longer part of the EU, has now said they'll take, I think, up to 200,000 refugees, if I'm not mistaken. So you're talking about basically most of all of Europe stepping up and saying we will take uh, refugees um, from, from Ukraine because, you know, they were, these are not people fleeing for better jobs or anything else. They're fleeing for their lives, basically. Right. And what, what has happened, I mean, to the uh, economy of Ukraine? I would imagine it's totally decimated at this point. Uh, how do they get back on their feet? Well, it's going to require some version of an, a Marshall Plan, except mostly given by the EU, I would think. The EU is already sort of talking about it. Mm. It's not so much, you know, the economy, the infrastructure is being destroyed. It's the Russians are doing. They're targeting infrastructure, civilian infrastructure, everything they can that makes a country they're trying to destroy. Um, so... You know, but a lot of their economy actually is these days is is high tech. Ukraine has been the back office for a lot of tech companies, both in the United States, um, in parts of parts of Europe, and then also for Israel, where some of the lower paying tech jobs, relatively speaking, are being done by Ukrainians. And so there are large, large numbers of Ukrainian uh, software developers and those things. And of course, those things all they need is an, all they need is electricity and an internet, and they can go back to work. Uh, so that, of course, is a good thing. Yeah. Um, in the, in that sense. So there, uh, there, the population so, though is the the average income and the one of the poorest countries in uh, Eurasia. Uh, you know, if they have these capacities, their capabilities, why are the people so poor? I think what you're seeing is is a historic. You know, looking back at history as part of Russia. So they were, you know, the Russians don't forget treated when it was part of the Soviet Union terribly. You know, if you go back in history, the Great Famine, where uh, three, million Russia, three million Ukrainians were died of hunger because the, the Soviet Union took all of their crops to bring to other parts of, of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So I think you're seeing the historical lagging. I think you'll see if you look at the last couple of years, the Ukrainian economy has done better and better. But, you know, when you start at a very low rate, it takes a long time to catch up. Yeah. And that's what you, what you have here. And they're not members of the EU. So they don't have the advantages of, you know, Poland and the Estonia and Latvia and all those countries um, in terms of being part of the EU. So it takes time for them to, to move forward. Yeah, but it's, it's uh, kind of, think, it, you know, that's one of the, it's kind of the breadbasket, isn't it, of, uh, of Europe in a sense that they grow a lot of wheat and uh, they have some staples that are very valuable across the world. Right. So they primarily wheat. They're a big exporter of wheat. Uh, there is a concern that there'll be a shortage of wheat in the world. I don't, from what I've read recently, it doesn't look as bad as as it seems. In other words, they represent 25%, them and Russia represent 25% of the export market of wheat. But it's a little bit of a um, misnomer because most countries grow their own wheat. So the export market isn't as big as one would think. Hmm. Um, so it only requires an increase in, in output. And from what I understand, because of the tensions that were in, taking place over the last three or four months, um, both the United States and India and Canada 
planted uh, bumper crops of wheat for for this spring. So, you know, it takes a time for wheat to grow, obviously, but um, it should more or less make up for the shortages that will come out of Ukraine and Russia. The fact that the United States, uh, India, and Canada, which are all very large wheat producers, uh, you know, planted many much more wheat this year in anticipation of maybe not a war, but tensions that brought up the prices of, of wheat considerably. So, Mark, what is the role of uh, Israel at this point uh, in in uh, this situation? Well, Israel has been uh, trying, the prime minister has been trying to uh, work as a negotiator, not with great success, but uh, both the Russians and the Ukrainians have encouraged him to continue. Uh, whether that's something that will succeed or not, it's not at all clear. Um, Israel has taken about 10,000 refugees so far, hmm. and it's set up a field hospital inside of Ukraine. So not at the border, but actually inside of Ukraine is a field hospital manned by Israeli doctors and nurses uh, that are taking care of Ukrainians. Wow. It's also been uh, some of the Israeli NGOs, from what I understand, have been uh, smuggling, using the right word, transporting medical supplies into Ukraine to get them to the various hospitals. Wow. Um, so it, other than not supplying arms, it's been taking a relatively active, active role and slowly but surely uh, moving much more, obviously, on the Ukrainian side. The Israelis are concerned about Russian presence in, in Syria, but as Russia is turning out to be much more of a paper tiger than people thought, um, that concern is slowly, slowly receding. Yeah. How about uh, Erdogan's role in this piece? I, I, know, I think that Zelensky called on, or perhaps it was Putin, I'm not sure which, called on uh, Erdogan in order to act as a mediator in this process. Right. So he's also someone who's trying to mediate. Supposedly there are going to be talks taking place, I think it is tomorrow in Turkey, uh, another round of peace talks that up till now have not brought anything significant. Um, it would require, you know, Russia to decide to send someone senior as opposed to low-level negotiators to try to negotiate an agreement. But again, peace is only going to come if Russia walks away from its main demands. And, you know, that's not likely to happen. And look, quite frankly, you know, we had the speech the other night by President Biden. Um, most, a lot of people say that was a gaffle, he said at the end, but it wasn't a gaffle. It was planned from the very beginning, in my opinion. I just didn't want to make made believe it was a gaffle and then it was walked back. But the reality is that really is the goal of everybody at this point. No one will say it. It's not. But the reality is Europe and the world will not be safe as long as Putin is still uh, the president of, of Russia. Think about it this way. Even if the you know, the Ukrainians win this war and fight them to a total standstill. What is more dangerous than a wounded animal? And that's what um, Putin will be at this point. I so, think the big concern, of course, is, real... yeah, is he has the nuclear arms. Uh, what is it? 6,000 nuclear arms, I think it is. that. Uh... Right. So that's the big concern everyone has. You know, again, we don't know. You know, he, he's bandaged it around. Some of his spokespeople have said that they would use it if their country was threatened. If their army was threatened, it's not at all clear. I mean, you know, what, under what circumstances would he consider using it? It's part of the, the Soviet military doctrine yeah. to use nu tactical nuclear weapons. So we just got to hope he won't. Uh, you know, that's a bridge once that's crossed. I don't, you know, mankind is in deep, deep, uh, you know what. Yeah, so uh, what about uh, his popularity among Russians? As I understand it, his popularity is quite high, like in the 70% range. It was earlier. It, it already dropped to the 50s and 40s um, as uh, the economy in Russia began to sour. In other words, certainly five, ten years ago, he was very, very popular because the economy was doing well. But as the economy has started to sour, don't forget, it began to sour after he invaded Crimea and they started the first rounds of sanctions on Russia. They weren't as they were nothing like the sanctions, these sanctions, but they had an impact on, on the Russians. Now, any sort of public opinion poll at this point would be irrelevant because who knows what, you know, people are afraid to answer anything. People mm. will, we will not get an, you know, a, a true public opinion poll at this point in the war. So I would, you know, hold off drawing to any sort of conclusions of how popular he is at this particular moment. So, Mark, could you comment on, you know, we, we've seen the price of oil go up, uh, the barrel of oil. We've also, we know that's a source of revenue, but we also know that the sanctions are in place. So where does this leave the Russian economy? Well, the Russian economy is in, in trouble, 
not so much in terms of oil because they're fi- they'll find other sources for, for their oil at the meantime. If they can cut off their gas exports, that'll have a more of an impact because it's much harder to find other markets for gas. What they're really in trouble from is the fact they're being cut off from technology, they're being cut off from spare parts. You know, they report their tank factory can't turn out any more tanks because they're missing the spare parts required. Hmm. Russia also globalized its economy. And they don't produce any sort of semiconductors at all. They don't produce a lot of electronic components. They're dependent on the West for most of them, some of them from China. Uh, but um, they're really in very deep trouble when it comes to those sort of things. And their economy is really sputtering at this point. Uh, will it be enough to impact him? I doubt it. Uh, at least in the short term, less popular, yes. Will it be a pressure for him to come to some sort of solution? No, no doubt. Um, economic sanctions uh, may not have deterred him. I don't think he believed these sanctions would be what you know as strong as they are. To be honest with you, I don't think anyone believed that was going to happen. I mean, um, the fact that Europe, within a day or two, had, had gone along with the strongest sanctions in history, uh, surprised everybody. Yeah. So I'm sure he was surprised as well. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. So any any comments at all? We have uh, this uh, the uh, the uh, Iran nuclear deal hanging fire. Russia playing a role in that entire process. I think the international diplomacy gets very confusing at this point. But where do we stand? It's more than confusing. Um, I've spoken in the last couple of days to a group of experts in the field that was on panels on TV these couple of days, and we're all perplexed. We really don't know. Yesterday, um, Mallory, who's the U.S. Uh, negotiator, was in Doha, and he spoke and said that um, the agreement is close, but it's been this close for a long time, so it's really unclear whether, you know, this should tell us something that just because we're close doesn't mean we're going to come to an agreement. Everyone ran out and spoke about the fact that the Iranians said an agreement is imminent. Imminent, excuse me. But when I listened to his full statement, he said, an agreement is imminent if the United States makes political decisions it has to make in order to reach an agreement. So that's like saying nothing, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's imminent, for, it's imminent, but there's been no agreement whatsoever. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken spoke in the last day or so, talked about if there is an agreement or if there's not an agreement. And he wasn't at all convinced there is going to be an agreement. So it's very unclear whether there's going to be an agreement or not. It's very unclear... You know, the, the real trade-offs in terms of the agreement, there's no question that an agreement will push off the Iranian nuclear program for four or five years. Is it worth it? Some people will say yes, and some people will say no. I mean, look, it was clear that walking away from the previous agreement was one of the biggest foreign policy mistakes um, ever made because it got us nowhere. Um, but um, a new agreement at this point for a shorter period of time, there's really a, a whole range of opinions and none of them, no one, no one can prove their point. To be honest with you, beyond a, beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, how about the notion uh, in that? My opinion. How about the notion that uh, uh, the agreement would uh, help to fuel uh, world terrorism? Because I mean, that's basically it frees up a lot of uh, the sanctions that have been imposed on Iran. Frees up money for Iran. Wouldn't that create the uh, funds necessary to uh, fuel terrorism around the world? I would say two things to that. One is nothing has been stopping them to fuel it in any case right now. So I'm not sure that money is what's holding back the Iranians from fueling any more terrorism. Hmm. Second of all, like I said, it's a trade-off, right? In other words, the trade-off is giving them money to allow them to do other things, but stopping the nuclear program for six to eight years. That's the trade-off. You can argue both sides of that, mind you, but it's not clear-cut. In other words, it's not clear-cut what is the better, better option. Um, so, you know, you can make a political point one way or the other. You can talk about it in different ways, but it could be either, frankly. And, um, I, I, you know, the point of the matter is, I don't think the U.S. is ready to make the final concessions the Iran wants, um, because it realizes that's too far. Um, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see who folds. Yeah. You know, on some levels, it's a game of chicken. On the other level, you know, we had said all along that if the agreement wasn't reached by a certain point, it became irrelevant. I frankly think we're beyond that that point. I spoke to someone involved in negotiations the other day, and they said, well, the Iranians pulled back on certain uh, enrichments in the last couple of weeks, so it gave us a little extra time. So I don't know. So Um, interesting, Mark. It's one of those fields that, you know, 
We can talk about forever, but we're really talking about without a lot of knowledge. Well, and of course, one thing that I've mentioned is the uh, the fact that Israel always has the capability to provide some sort of an intrusion, some sort of a uh, a worm or something that might get into the whole process. And I think it slowed things down for a couple of years before. Right, it's clearly slowed them down, but it hasn't stopped them. Look, Israel Israel uh, destroyed their their centrifuges using cyber warfare, theoretically. Uh, theoretically, it killed some of the top scientists, uh, but it hasn't stopped the program. It has slowed down the program quite quite clearly, but it hasn't stopped it. Uh, the regional the original agreement stopped the program in its tracks for you know until it was walked away from by the United States. So, again, everything is a balancing act, and there's no clear cut answers. I'm afraid in this in this particular case. Yeah, Mark Schulman again, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you check out the website. It's really quite interesting and uh, very useful. Get people interested in history. You're having pr- trouble uh, motivating that young person in your life. HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your commentary. Remember, you can't. You can't. I, well, one last comment, you can't be a good citizen without understanding history. You can't decide what you support and what you don't support unless you understand what happened previously, because history does not repeat itself, but it, we learn from it, and we should learn from our mistakes, whatever they may be. I couldn't agree more, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful week. You as well. Thank you. HistoryCenter.com. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for economic education. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a -a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com. Or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. In fact, what's running right now is just really terrific. You can get tickets now by visiting the website gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Larry, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are headquartered in Atlanta, and our work is aimed at high school and college students all over the country and sometimes abroad. We attempt to educate and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, small government, and personal character. And our website does a very good job of that each day of the week with fresh content. 
Uh, it is uh, visible at fee, F-E-E dot org. And we also hold in-person events around the country as well as sponsor free videos and courses online. Fee.org, and I, I do want to just absolutely endorse a great organization for young people. I wish I had introduced my kids to it when they were back in high school or college age. If you have a young person your age, uh, at that age in your life, do check out fee.org. Larry, you wrote a great piece on Warren G. Harding, the uh, president of the United States that got a bad rap for the Teapot Dome scandal. You're making a different case for him. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yes, I think Warren Harding's reputation is presently undergoing quite a renovation with some new articles and even books coming out about him that takes a second look. Uh, the reputation that he has is one of uh, uh, corruption and uh, uh, incompetence and perhaps uh, inaction in a lot of things. Uh, but I, I think that it's grossly uh, mistaken. And uh, this most recent article that I did zeroed in on something rather narrow, but it's it's part of the bigger package, uh, indicating that Harding was a better man than uh, uh, he's given credit for. Uh, my article focused on uh, his uh, desire to uh, trim the expenses of government, even to the point of uh, cutting way back on the expenses for his own inauguration. Um, between the election of 1920 in November and when he took office the following March, uh, he was increasingly concerned as he learned of all these plans for a very uh, uh, pompous inauguration. And so there was a day in early January of 1921 where he put his foot down and said, I don't want all this fancy stuff. It's not uh, appropriate. I want to set an example of thrift. And uh, he wanted no parade, no ball, no anything that, that, that suggested ostentation or the squandering of public money. And that was characteristic of him throughout his term, and not only in expenses that pertain to him, but he did more to cut back the size and the spending of government than perhaps any president but Calvin Coolidge, his vice president, in the last century. Well, that's such an interesting story. I mean, I think back to the history that I learned, even in high school, basically, that uh, he was there had card games at the White House, and there were all kinds of <laughs> things going on that uh, suggested a lack of character. What you're describing is somebody who had, um, you know, real character. Yeah, well, he did play poker at the White House, and uh, there's really nothing wrong with that. They didn't play for money. Yeah, uh, they had a good time, and uh, uh, it was it was Harding and some of his uh, friends and guests who played. Uh, nothing untoward about that. The scandals involving uh, Teapot Dome and uh, the, the um, Department of Justice and so forth—they uh, were real scandals, but <clears throat> nobody's been able to tie uh, Harding himself to them. And, in fact, Teapot Dome sort of unraveled after he died in office. Uh, but whenever something arose that was uh, untoward, he was quick to act. Uh, Jess Smith from the Justice Department uh, uh, was one of these bad actors who betrayed the president. And the moment that Harding heard of uh, his corruption, he called him in and told him he was fired on the spot. Wow. Um, and it deeply concerned him that there were some people around him who had betrayed him. Uh, but, um, you know, you, you really can't blame Harding for them because uh, they didn't benefit him and he wasn't aware of them. And when he was, he acted quickly. Well, and uh, speaking of men surrounding him, of course, Andrew Mellon, I was his uh, Treasury of the Secretary, I think, at the time, and I think he, yeah. he he made a mark on the United States government. Oh, he sure did. He was one of Harding's many uh, fantastic appointments, maybe the best Treasury Secretary in American history. He spearheaded the effort to reduce tax rates, which was successful. He uh, uh, actually, in his own office as Treasury Secretary, Mellon reduced the size of his department dramatically on the average by one employee for every day hmm. of the 11 years he served uh, three presidents as Treasury Secretary. Can you imagine the impact that would have if that happened in the Department of Education? <laughs> it would be a wonderful thing. <laughs> oh my thing. gosh, we can hope. It would be a wonderful thing indeed. So uh, Warren G. Harding, he again deserves to have his uh, 
reputation restored. Obviously, uh, you know, as a conservative, he was uh, living by the principles of keeping government small for us, and probably one of the few examples in the uh, 20th century where that actually occurred. So uh, hats off to Warren G. Harding. Yeah, I agree, and I highly recommend to your readers a new book that came out in the last couple months uh, by Ryan Walters. It's entitled The Jazz Age President, and uh, it's a very comprehensive look, uh, new look, at Warren Harding, and uh, you'll read that and come away thinking, wow, uh, he was a far better president than he's given credit for. So interesting. Larry Reed, again, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Again, if there's a young person in your life, J.H., introduce them to the organization. Fee.org is the website, F-E-E.org. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Jim McTagg. Uh, Jim just came out with a new book. It's called uh, No Problem. It's a sequel to his first two novels. The first is... uh, Follow the Leader is the second to Shake the Money Tree. And this third, I just got a copy of it. I'm so happy. I'm looking forward to reading it. It's called No Problem, a Martin and Twyla Boundary Mystery by uh, Jim McTagg. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you have questions about your retirement, Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. But he also has written a couple of novels. His first two are uh, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. And his sequel to that just came out. Got it, my grubby appendages on it right now. It's called No Problem. It's a Martin and Twyla Bell by Jim McTagg. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Bob. I'm asking for this warmth because up here uh in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania, all the way down to Washington, D.C., they're predicting the possibility of snow flurries today. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days that, uh, growing up in Washington, D.C., absolutely. So, uh, hey, yeah, give us a little tease on the book, no problem. Uh, well, it's great because, you know, you know, Martin and Twyla Boundary are rare in detective circles because they're a married couple. 
you know, most detectives are uh, uh, divorced loners, mm-hmm. uh, so so that uh, they each have a murder murder mysteries to solve. Twyla wants Martin to keep his nose out of her case, but of course the murders intersect, and he can't. So so uh, not only do we have a phenomenal murder mystery in terms of Congress uh, that they have to solve. But it, but they have to keep their marriage together as they solve this case. So uh, uh, it's a great Washington D.C. type uh, novel because yeah. uh, Twyla has Potomac fever, and Martin would like to get out of the city and and have a normal life someplace else. Well, I appreciate the uh, getting a copy of the book, and I'm looking forward to read it this week. No problem. Again, bye bye, Jim McTagg, M C capital T A G U E. Jim, uh, we're at budget time right now, and the president is uh, higher taxes is beginning to rear its ugly head again. And there's also the whole notion of having a, a, some uh, some of the parts of uh, make what is it make better, better back again or whatever it was <laughs> the legislation that uh, perhaps. Uh, Manchin could go along with. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, first of all, I used to collect budgets annually for years when I was at Barron's, uh, and they're generally a dead letter. I, I mean, Congress really, you know, Congress decides what we're going to spend our money on. Uh, the president's budget is a is a wish list, and it should engender uh, debate. It should really look at uh, the... Uh, Parts of, you know, it should look at the most important needs of of uh, the national government. Mm. Uh, generally, it doesn't. It becomes a uh, you know, partisan political document. So, uh, uh, what's amazing about this uh, proposed Biden budget to nowhere is that it swings to the right. <laughs> you know, it, it, as Politico playbook points out today, it has Joe Manchin written all over it. So it has uh, more money for cops. You know, this is uh, uh, the Democratic Party that wanted to defund the police. Mm-hmm. It has a 4% increase in defense spending, uh, which I would note is uh, three percentage points uh, lower than the rate of inflation. So so although it's a boost in the Pentagon, proposed boost in the Pentagon budget, it's not a boost in spending power. Uh, it would also tax the most unpopular people in the country, the upper 1%, our most successful people. Uh, and it would have a, uh, a new feature, which would tax the unrealized gains on their uh, portfolios, which, which uh, is not only uh, too complex for words, uh, but I think it would spook the middle class because uh, they don't trust Joe Biden. There's a new poll out today by NBC, not a right-wing organization, which shows that seven in 10 Americans disapprove of uh, Biden. They uh, don't trust him as chief executive. So I think uh, the skeptical public will look at the proposal aimed at the upper 1% and say, hey, we're in the headlights too. So uh, so uh, let the debate begin, but I think uh, it's the budget is designed to help the Democrats in the looming midterm, which looks like a disaster for that party, and I think it will hurt them more than help them because yeah. of the public's distrust. Yeah, so just taking a step back, I mean, is there any possibility that uh, – Aside from something that just gets uh, does 180 degree in uh, in terms of this economy, for example, drill baby drill, come, come up with some sort of a legislation to uh, increase the carbon based fuels are in the United States. Is there anything that possibly could pass under this administration? I think they pretty much shot their wad, haven't they? Uh, they have, and and there's no bipartisanship on the Hill at all. I mean. I mean, you could see an agreement on COVID spending. I think Mitt Romney is working with the Democrats on some kind of a compromise. But in terms of any major budget uh, proposal, it's not going to happen in advance of the midterm elections. I mean, why would the you know the Republicans see the handwriting on the wall? It's a wave election. They're going to control both houses of the Congress. Uh, there's no no incentive for them to cooperate with the Democrats between now and the uh, midterm elections. 
So, so the bottom line is nothing happens this year. Yeah, that's that's my take on it. Although you said something so interesting, I've I've uh, certainly seen that there's going to be a way for the for the uh, House of Representatives. How about the Senate? Are, is that what you're seeing as well? Uh, yes, I think the poll numbers are so negative, so so negative that that there is a uh, you know the old silent majority is much larger. This is this is my deduction. Mm-hmm. I think the silent majority is much larger uh, than the pollsters and the press appreciate, and because of uh, wokeness. Uh, the silent majority is even more silent than it's been at any point in history. And I think there's going to be a huge backlash at the polls. And I see, I see, uh, you know, the Republicans uh, retaining control of the Senate and just, uh, you know, taking the House by a large margin. That's so interesting. I, you know, in the background, of course, uh, Trump held a rally in Commerce, uh, Georgia this weekend. It was fantastic. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. But uh, what I see happening, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is that he's uh, he's pulling together within the Republican Party and even outside of the Republican Party, make America great again. In other words, he's trying to get people saying, we're going to bring the government back to the people. We're going to restore uh, an attempt to build smaller government. Uh, we're going to make, uh, you know, bring uh, companies back to the American shores, you know, lower taxes, make, you know, do all the things that he talked about before. And he wants to do that. And I see that as he's trying to eliminate the competition in the Republican Party, the rhinos, and get people on the same page, including Hispanics and blacks. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think he is, uh, his new role is kingmaker and shaper of the uh, party's agenda. I don't see him running for president again, although he says he would. He like you know, he's, he's a master marketer. I was thinking today how he dominated the newspaper headlines day after day after day for years. Mm -hmm. And nobody has ever dominated the headlines today. Uh, The war in the Ukraine can't even dominate the headlines today. That war has been replaced by some stupid slap on the Oscars, which I didn't watch, by the way. (laughs) Neither did I. (laughs) (laughs) But it shows you uh, the public's attention is fickle. The press attention is fickle. And uh, so, so you, I think Trump is going to have an amazing impact on the direction of the Republican Party. He already has. I don't think he personally will run uh, for president. I think he really, I'm assuming just watching him, that he really enjoys his role as a uh, as kingmaker. Uh, kingmaker. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting observation. You know, but it's certainly, uh, I could make the case that you're making. I, I believe that he will run, but if he doesn't, I mean, I can understand better why Pompeo and these others are starting to build their own case to become president. Uh, maybe they know something we don't, which was uh, maybe uh, the Trumpsters shared some of that information with them, and I'm like, my intention is not to run. Well, I also think it's because Joe Biden and, and his age-related gaffes Mm-hmm. Have, have probably created a, a sense of ageism among the uh, the voting public. So I think any old person, uh, regardless of uh, how uh, brilliant they, <laughs> that person might be, is going to have difficulty uh, getting votes. I think I think Biden has uh, created a uh, a scar that it'll, it'll take a long time for that to heal. No, no question. Uh, my, one of my previous guests suggested that some of the gaffes that he made uh, abroad in Poland were not gaffes at all, but kind of planned. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I think he really screwed up uh, on the international stage this weekend, and we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. Jim McTague again. I do too. Do you? You think he screwed up? I, I do. I think he said what we all think, but when you're president, you're not supposed to do that. No, you're not. Jim McTague, again, author of No Problem. I encourage, I don't think you need to read uh, the first two to get this one, but uh, get a copy of Jim McTague's No Problem, A Marshall and Twyla Boundary Mystery. Sounds like great reading. No Problem by Jim McTague. Jim, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I learned a lot. I hope you'll uh, be with us tomorrow. We've got great guests, including Seat Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator, and uh, the future 
president of the Senate here in Florida will be with us, as well as Boo Mortensen and uh, Linda Harden will be joining us as well, my wife, who writes Greetings from Paradise. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends. I really appreciate uh, your uh, patronage of the show and of our advertisers. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.